everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. You own your website. You should be able to control everything that executes on your website. You should be able to protect your user experience. You should be able to dictate your user experience because it's your website. On the malvertising world, what we saw happening was if folks had ads on their website, they had lost control of the user experience. They had lost control of revenue because any bad actor could just buy an ad and take over the user experience and get you to spin the wheel. All right, we've all seen it. And maybe some of us have even fallen for the trick. You're on an e-commerce site and a big wheel of savings pops up. And this innocent seeming discount offer is not so innocent. And it's actually doing damage to the end user, not only spinning the wheel, but also the site that the wheel pops up on. And I may even say that I've clicked at least once or twice on this and fell for it. Very dumb. The world of advertising and browser extensions has been causing headaches in the e-commerce world for years. And brands are constantly looking for ways to fight back and regain control of their websites. It was fun chatting with Matt Gillis, who's helping with that mission. Matt's the CEO of Clean.io. Clean.io offers real-time protection against malicious actors and code for some of the most trafficked websites in the world. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Matt and I walk through some of the methods that bad actors are using to install malicious code on e-commerce sites. And he dives into the nitty gritty of why browser extensions like Honey and Wikibuy are hurting the brand's bottom lines and why some of those extensions are making marketing attribution nearly impossible. But he also offers up some solutions, which is nice. So brands can finally win back control of the user experience. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Before we get into the episode, I would love it if you could hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review. I really want to know what you think and hear how we're doing. All right, on to the interview. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder at Mission.org. Today on the show, we have Matt Gillis, the CEO at Clean.io. Matt, welcome. Stephanie, thanks for having me. I'm excited. I am very excited to have you here. We were just talking about how cool your background is. And I think that's actually kind of a fun place to start of where you're at in the world. And tell me a bit about your background. Yeah. Hey, so uh, I'm in Baltimore. Uh, and, uh, we actually just took possession of this office, uh, in February, right before the pandemic. Um, and so the irony is, is I've been here every day, uh, since the pandemic started pretty much by yourself, um, but I'm by myself. So we have 4,000 square feet. Uh, we just did the mural right before the pandemic and no one on our team has been able to experience it pretty much. So, uh, you know, but yeah, uh, cybersecurity company located in Baltimore, we're about 45 people, I guess I, you could say. Um, solving this problem of untrusted and malicious JavaScript that is ruining user experiences and revenue across the internet. So that's us in a nutshell. 
Cool. Well, I am really excited to dive further into clean.io. Before we do that, though, I was hoping you can kind of go through your background because I saw you've worked at, you know, places like AOL, you've been in publishing, you've been in, you know, ad space. Like, tell me a bit about what you did before you came to clean.io. So uh, full disclosure, I'm old. Uh, and so <laughs> okay. I, I've been around a little bit. I've, I've had some fun. But yeah, no, I think like key things, I, I've spent um, probably the last 20-ish or so years in, in a couple different capacities. Right out of university, I started in the mobile industry. And, and mobile at that time was like just making phone calls, yep. right? There wasn't even texting then. Uh, my, in fact, my job back in those days was I would stand on a golf course at a golf tournament and let people make free phone calls because that was the cool thing to do then. No one had cell phones. Oh my gosh. And if they did, they were like those brick ones. You remember those ones yeah. that you couldn't fit in yeah. your pocket? Um, you were the cool guy, like, I've got access to an awesome phone. Anyone want in? Yeah. And like, you know, listen, men and women would come up to me at this and they'd be like, oh, can I call back and check and see if I have any messages? And so like, that was the cool thing to do then. I know it sounds so crazy, right? That that yep. was a thing at some point. But yeah, so I worked at mobile operators in the early stages of my career. So I worked at Bell Mobility uh, in Toronto, Canada. I'm from Toronto. Uh, and then I moved down here um, to work at Verizon Wireless. And at the end of my tenure at Bell Mobility and, and my tenure at Verizon, I was focused on uh, some of the services that you live by on your cell phone today. So this was in, uh, you know, kind of late 99 and then like the early 2000s of uh, things like video on demand on your phone, uh, playing games on your phone, downloading ringtones on your phone. I'm sure you Ooh, did that, Ringtones, right? yeah, I uh, ringtones. They were, they were, They were like obviously a, a huge business at some point. Now if my phone rings, I'm like, oh, stop it. What are you doing? Who's calling yeah. me? Don't call me, text Put me. Put it on mute. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so yeah, so I, I was kind of part of the foundational days of things that you would do with your phone, like before the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I went and took a swing at, at being an entrepreneur uh, and, and joined a little small video game company um, our biggest game was who wants to be a millionaire. Um, we also, we did a lot of TV game shows. So we did, are you smarter than a fifth grader and things like that. Um, oh, nice. so I, I kind of walked a mile as a publisher for a while. And then Capcom, which is a Japanese video game company acquired us. Uh, so I, I ran their publishing business for a few years and I got to experience what it's like to be a publisher and how hard it is to make money. And that was kind of in those early days of the iPhone where I, I say to people like, you know, you'll go and spend, you know, $5 on this latte but you won't pay $5 for, you know, unlimited use of a game over a period of time. And this is back in like 2008, yep. 2009. And uh, so we had a real struggle and uh, people weren't wanting to pay for our games. They wanted them free and free became mm -hmm. kind of the thing on the iPhone. And so uh, recognizing that struggle, I actually joined this company called Millennial Media, which was a, one of the earliest mobile ads platforms uh, for app developers, helping app developers make money with ads. Um, some of our biggest customers at the time were like Words with Friends. If you've played Words with Friends, you know yes, ads I have. in every game. So we were, we were kind yeah. of one of the foundational tech partners with folks like Words with Friends and, and you know, various other games across the internet and uh, apps. Did that for eight years through an acquisition with Verizon and AOL. And then we acquired Yahoo. So I ran the publisher platforms business at uh, the combined entity of those companies, which was awesome. And one of the biggest problems in my time over that period was this thing called malicious ads or like malvertising as they call it. Um, you probably are familiar with you when you're scrolling away on your phone and all of a sudden it redirects you and says, congratulations, you want an Amazon gift card. And you're like, I didn't, yes. I didn't click anything uh, or spin the wheel for your chance or fill out this yep. survey. I did that once. Feel, I fell for spin it. The wheel. I was like, oh, oh I spun Stephanie, it. Ne I couldn't help never it. Never spin the wheel, Stephanie. <laughs> um, I only did it once, but yeah, afterwards I'm like, that was a bad call. Yeah. Why did I do that? Yeah. So it, it was a big problem in my past life. And, uh, 
there were a few folks that were solving this problem, um, you know, and, and two of them were folks that I had worked with at AOL. I went, when I left, uh, it was called Oath at the time, which was the, you know, Verizon Media now. I went and had lunch with these guys and they told me that they were spinning up this company called Clean Creative and uh, set to solve this problem of malvertising. And I didn't have a job and uh, it was getting too cold to golf. And so I said, hey guys, can I be an intern? Uh, and so I came and hung around for a couple of days a week. And uh, I was like, you guys are really onto something here because this was a massive problem in my prior life. And so I said, hey, can I have the keys? And they obliged. And that's how I'm here. Started uh, as the CEO two years ago. Um, and uh, we've kind of been blowing it up ever since. That's awesome. Yeah, such a fun story. So what does your day-to-day look like now? And what's your best day in the office look like while you're there by yourself? Are you around skipping around, bicycling around the big office? Like, what does your days look like? Oh, I do pace and I get my steps in over there. There you go. Um, No, like like day-to-day, we're a startup. So we're small. um, And so, you know, as as any of your listeners would know at a startup, you know, you do everything. And yep. you, t- you take the trash out and you sign big contracts, hopefully. Uh, you raise money. Uh, you know, you kind of like do uh, run the gamut. Um, so it's a little bit of everything. You know, if, if you've worked at a startup, you know that, you know, generally speaking, there's epic highs and epic lows. And so you have those days where you are the king of the world and you and your team are like high-fiving and celebrating. And that's a little different now because you got to do it all virtually. You know, part of being at a startup is you get that culture of everybody, you know, generally speaking, being in an office like this, but we're a widely distributed culture now. We were before the pandemic where we, you know, kind of had, I don't know, like five or six or seven locations among all of our people. Um, But now we have, you know, 40 locations. It's just like any other gig, uh, except, uh, you know, uh, there's there's really no uh, net underneath you. You're walking this tightrope and hopefully you get to the other side. Yep. I feel that. Definitely feel that. It's fun though, right? Isn't yeah. that why you do it? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it's definitely really fun. Other times you're like, oh my gosh, people's lives are like, I'm responsible for so many lives. And then other days it's like, this is fun. So it's a good, it's a good balance. So. Yeah. I mean, I won't lie. I had months of sleepless nights when we were raising money. We most recently yeah. raised our series A uh, and we started raising it in March, right at the beginning mm-hmm. of the pandemic. And uh, yeah, like, you know, all these people's jobs, like for me, I, the pressure was on me to make sure that we could raise money and continue on this mission. The reality is, is the people behind the scenes are the ones that actually made my job easy because they, they're the ones that enabled me to go and tell the story of our massive revenue growth and our massive traction and our product market fit and all of that sort of stuff. Um, So, you know, it's uh, startups are hard, but there's a reason that, you know, many people, once you leave the big company and you actually go and take your swing that you like that becomes the thing that you keep doing and doing and doing because you like having that, that euphoric feeling. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. And I mean, I think it's a good reminder too, like as the CEO at any company to kind of like get out of your way and, you know, hire a team that can support you and do things that then lets you do the higher level things like selling, like raising money. Um, So that's just a good point for, I think, a lot of business owners who want to kind of stay attached to, you know, I've always been coding or I always, you know, did this part of the business, like need to step away and find people who can step in for you so you can go on to the next thing. Yeah. And focus on your strengths, right? Like don't try and uh, overcompensate and like, like really, we did this thing called Strengths Finder with our leadership team. And uh, it was really about figuring out like, what are the strengths across this, this group of people that are 
practically leading, leading the company and you go, okay, well, I'm really good at this, this, and this, and you're really good at this, this, and this. Wow, we complement each other. I should continue to keep doing this stuff. And boy, we should just let you handle all of this sort of stuff. So yep. yeah, you know, hire a diverse team and hire people that are way smarter than you. Yes. You'll be successful. Yep. So how have you seen the digital security landscape change maybe even over just the past year or two? Like what new things are popping up? What should e-commerce owners be aware of right now that maybe wasn't happening last year or two years ago? You know, I would say that, you know, where we cut our teeth was in this malvertising space. And, and what, it, what it is, is malicious JavaScript that's kind of being injected into the user experience through ads. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what we've seen is that the bad actors, the people that are doing it, are getting even more sophisticated over time. They have figured out how to get around, you know, the, the systems. They've figured out how to get around the checks and balances. And we kind of stumbled into this e-commerce world where, you know, we were protecting, we're protecting some of the biggest websites on the internet. There's 7 million websites that, that, that run our code. You know, probably many of the websites that you go to every day, either to get your news or, uh, you know, to, you know, read entertainment gossip or that sort of stuff. If you no. do that, I'm, I'm not saying you do Stephanie, uh-uh. but, um, but yeah, like we protect all of those sites, every single page view on those pages, we make sure that the user experience is protected and revenue is protected. Mm-hmm. Um, what we started seeing, and by the way, in that world, it's folks that are, I would say, deliver, delivering malicious JavaScript. What we started seeing in the e-commerce world is there's this, whole, there's this whole phenomenon of what I would call untrusted JavaScript. Now, in either case, the premise is you own your website. You should be able to control everything that executes on your website. You should be able to protect your user experience. You should be able to dictate your user experience because it's your website. Mm-hmm. On the malvertising world, what we saw happening was if folks had ads on their website, they had lost control of the user experience. They had lost control of revenue because any bad actor could just buy an ad and take over the user experience and get you to spin the wheel. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Only once, but Only yes. once, but it happened. Okay. Yeah. And so in the e-commerce world, what we've noticed is there's a lot of stuff happening on e-commerce sites, just like there is in, in any website that is without the permission or without the authorization of the person who owns the site. The biggest problem that we've kind of dug in and, and gone to solve for is if you ever heard of these things called Honey or Wikibuy, yep. um, so these are um, you know Chrome extensions, Safari extensions, Firefox extensions. Um, they sit resident on the user's device, and you know Stephanie, when you're out shopping on on your computer and you get to checkout, Honey will pop up and say, "Hey, I've got coupons for you. Do you want them?" You as the user, you're probably like, "Yeah, I'd love to get a discount. I'd love a better price if I can get it without having to do any work." Honey does all the hard work for you. We think that that's not really in the best uh, interests of the merchants because they own their website. And now someone is injecting code in and disrupting the user experience, disrupting your revenue. So just like it is in this malvertising world, the same phenomenon is happening over here. The difference is Honey is owned by PayPal. Wikibuy is owned by Capital One. So the folks that I would call like the quote unquote bad actors in this world are actually like fortune 100 companies. Mm -hmm. They're folks that you would expect to be able to trust. And what they're doing is they're actually injecting code in to disrupt the user experience and disrupt revenue. And so that's the problem that we've gone out and solved. We just launched our product. It's called clean cart. Um, And what it is, is it's a Shopify app and it gives Shopify merchants the ability to protect their carts at checkout and make sure that they can prevent this sort of code from disrupting user experiences and revenue. So it really is giving control of the websites back to the merchants. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. So when you implement that, you just can't get coupons or are there other pieces that it kind of protects as well? Or like the user can't see coupons from a honey or something, or are there other things that your app is also protecting against? So we're in, we're in, I would say like the second inning of the baseball game. Um, mm-hmm. So early stages, um, what we're really focused on to start is blocking the automation of these coupons. So we don't want to block, you know, you as a user going in and manually uh, inserting a coupon. We think that's the intended use case. Mm-hmm. But what we think is unfair is that, you know, someone is standing beside you at checkout and handing you a mitt full of coupons and actually not even handing to you, them to you. They're actually like giving them and, and just like, you know, scanning them all to make sure that they all have a chance to work. Yeah. If you think about this analogy, like the grocery store would never let someone come and stand beside the checkout and save you 30% off your, uh, your grocery order while you're already ready to pay. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the phenomenon that we're trying to solve for in the earliest days, which is like, let's prevent the automation from happening. Um, let's not prevent people from manually inserting coupons. Um, let's give control back to the merchants because it impacts them in so many different ways. Obviously, it impacts them from a revenue loss perspective. We t- I talk to merchants every day. You know, many merchants are complaining that these injections are like literally scraping and, and pulling 30% off of their cart value at checkout. So someone who had a hundred dollar cart, they go to checkout, honey runs and it knocks their, uh, you know, their cart value from, you know, a hundred dollars to $70. That's, that's kind of bad for the merchant, especially if that person was going to convert anyway. Mm -hmm. The other key thing is, is honey and Wikibuy and these other uh, discount extensions have made it really hard for merchants to have discounting strategies that they can track. And so what's happening is, is that promo codes, you know, are ending up in the wrong hands it's creating an attribution nightmare for merchants where, you know, they think that this social media influencer or this Instagrammer or this YouTuber is driving tons of sales. And lo and behold, Honey has grabbed that coupon and is injecting it. And now every order that comes through where Honey was present on the page is applying that person's code. And so now uh. the merchant not only has bad data that is going to hope, like, ultimately drive their marketing decisions, but now they're also losing revenue and they're paying out affiliate fees to folks that generally didn't deserve that affiliate fee. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, I think it's created a bit of a nightmare. Um, and so we, we felt this, you know, kind of pent up demand for this product. And that's exactly what's happened is that, that no one has solved it. We think we're first to market. And we think it's important that, that people are fighting for the merchants, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, you know, there's been 10 years of growth in e-commerce over the last year you know, the pandemic driving a lot of that. And we think it's important that merchants really get control of their websites, get control of their margins, get control of their revenue, and and really get the right data to make the right database decisions of how they're going to run their marketing programs. Yeah. So I think that's a really cool story. You were just talking about, about how you were looking at a problem that people were complaining about. And then now you guys were like, well, let's solve it. Because I've read, I'm trying to think where this was, where they're talking about going to Reddit and looking at some of the threads of people, you know, talking about problems that keep occurring and occurring and how you could build businesses just based off Reddit threads. And you guys did that. That's true. Yeah. Just looking at problems with, you know, what merchants were struggling with. So a really cool example of how to build a business is look at all the problems that are going on and jump at solving it. Well, and I think it, like the, the other key thing here, as you know, is like solving the problem, but also during that process of your hypotheses that you're going to develop of what you're trying to prove is you also need to prove that people will pay for it. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, and that's, I think, part of the foundation of what we've built here, obviously on the, on the malvertising side, but also on the e-commerce side is, you know, it's a big enough problem. People need to protect user experiences. Like, it's, like if you think about just in the internet in general, it's very expensive to create content. It's very expensive to drive traffic. And once you've done those two things, why would you leave it to chance that someone might come to your website and have a crappy user experience? Like protect your user experience. It happened last week on the Harvard Crimson, on the crimson.com, mm-hmm. where uh, somebody was on uh, the Crimson and they got one of these redirect ads that took them to this landing page that said, hey, you're a Verizon customer, click here and take the survey and answer these nine questions and you'll have a chance to win. And this user actually took to Twitter and said, hey, at the Crimson, which is I think their Twitter handle, you've got a crappy user experience. Like, why, why are you letting this happen? I never even saw a reply from, from the Crimson. Um, but, you know, when we did some investigation on what was going on, like they don't even have protection on their website. So, you know, it just, it fe- almost feels irresponsible this day and age to not be protecting your asset because your asset, generally speaking, isn't your, you know, website. Your asset is like your users. And so protect your users, make them feel confident that when they come to your site, they're going to have a great experience. And, so that, that's really what we've focused on is just, you know, delivering uh, technology that solves a problem that people are willing to pay for, um, mm-hmm. because obviously without that, we don't have a business. So. so how, like when thinking about like the Crimson example, that's all from an, a bad ad being run on their website, correct? Mm-hmm. Like someone was able to buy that ad unit, have bad JavaScript, and then that's when they were sent to that Verizon survey. Am I thinking about that right? You're totally thinking about that, right? And what's interesting about the thread is that when this this woman went onto Twitter and said, hey, this is what happened and here's a screenshot, mm-hmm. there were a whole bunch of people that piled on the thread of like, oh, here's what I think is happening. Oh, you have a virus on your computer or, yeah. oh, you have a bad, uh, you know, extension uh, on your computer or whatever. Like everybody had a hypothesis of what mm-hmm. happening. And so we actually went and captured the threat and reverse engineered it and said like, here's exactly what's happening. And uh, yeah, it's all coming through ads on, in, in that case. And um, there's so many great things of the open programmatic ecosystem, mm-hmm. right? So programmatic media, being able to buy a single oppression at a time, by, you know, by a single user, you know, real humans, real devices, real networks, like, you know, I'm having a one-to-one engagement with this person. And in the malvertising world, that's a feeding ground for bad actors because yeah. they get to do the same thing. And quite frankly, they're better at it than any other advertiser out there because they're the ones who know how to pay 20 cent CPM and buy an ad and actually get a hundred percent click through as opposed to the rest of the world. That's just hoping that they get a half a percent click through rate. And yeah. so, you know, they figured out how to, you know, buy that ad, that ad renders on your device. And then usually it's like an on touch event. So like when you actually just touch the device, they put a transparent overlay on your device and like that turns into a click uh, or they'll mm-hmm. auto click something on your behalf or, you know, however they wow. decide to inject their technology. But yeah, it's, it's as simple as that. And, um, and it's, I think it's lucrative. Otherwise yeah. they wouldn't keep they doing, wouldn't be it. doing it. They try to do it at the lowest possible level without getting caught. So if you think about mm-hmm. like sophisticated marketers, what do you do? Well, you pick the right users, you maybe frequency cap so that you don't like lambaste them with ads, right? Mm-hmm. You want to like hit them at the right time with the right message and all that sort of stuff. And so these bad actors have figured out how to very elegantly and in a sophisticated fashion they'll hit you with that ad. Um, but the reality is, is they'll probably frequency cap you to one. So you can't reproduce the experience. Mm-hmm. And that's how they evade getting caught in most cases. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, very interesting. I didn't understand the whole back end of how that mm-hmm. worked. 
I mean, I do spend a lot of time thinking about building incentives for advertisers because we build up our own ad networks to advertise our podcast and we bring on partners all the time. And it's really funny thinking through how to build incentives for especially newer, you know, advertisers when you might say something like, oh, we'll incentivize you based on a download. Okay. Then all of a sudden you're getting all these like fake downloads. Okay. No, not downloads. We'll incentivize you based on consumption. Like does someone listen to the episode? They wanted to hear it. And then you see, you know, instead of actually having good people come through and consume the episode, the advertiser will say, okay, I'll pay you to review the ad or review the podcast, which makes it show that you were consuming it because you had to for maybe a minute to then be able to review. And it's always interesting trying to figure out, you know, I mean, and these people maybe are not the be- like good actors, maybe I'm not really sure, but it's always very interesting thinking like, how do you incentivize, you know, people to do the right thing and actually deliver and not try and always like get around the rules and, you know, just like meet a number, um, which I'm sure a lot of the platforms deal with the same kind of thing. But it's interesting. You use the word incentivized and that was like, a dirty word in the early days, right? Where like incentive, like most advertisers didn't feel that the word incentivize was uh, a good user because they didn't truly have the intent uh, to do the thing that you want because they were being paid or a bounty or whatever the thing is. Um, I saw the evolution of incentivized in, in my mobile career where it became really hard to get people to consume video commercials, like 15, six second, you know, whatever that, that metric was. And in the games world, they figured out this thing and, and they actually rebranded it instead of calling it incentivized video, they actually called it rewarded video. No, and, I feel like that's uh, a little more, well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, listen, like, and, and so I talk about like one of the apps that I love is this app called Candy Crush. And I've been yeah. playing Candy Crush for almost 10 years now, I think. And when's the last time you played the same game for 10 years? Like, yeah, it's like that's never. impressive. But, um, but they've, they've artfully integrated video into their app. And if you, I think if you run out of lives, you can watch a, you know, a 30 second spot that is unskippable. So you have to watch the whole thing. Uh, and then if you do, you get rewarded with that extra life or, you know, whatever it is, maybe a lollipop. I don't know. But um, yeah, so I, I think there's, uh, there's, there's different ways to approach it, but you're right. You know, usually, usually when you figure out the bounty, everyone else figures out how to capitalize on the bounty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think the interesting thing with Honey and Wikibuy is they've figured out how to get paid for the bounty or get credit for the bounty when lo and behold, they didn't really do anything. Mm-hmm. All, they, all they did was they had code that was resident on the machine that allows them to kind of get credit for that user purchasing when yeah. I think it's questionable whether they had any influence on that. Yeah. Yeah, I've kind of thought that too when seeing different Instagrammers with their promo codes for e-commerce sites. And I always thought like, oh, how does that attribution work? Because I mean, she's sharing it here, but I'm sure it's very easy for someone who doesn't follow her to also find that code outside of a honey, but just, you know, be like, send it to my friend. Hey, use this code. They never even followed her. And now they've got 25% off or something. So it does seem like attribution can be tricky, even if someone's not using honey. Like, how do you think... um, that world's changing right now to make it easier for merchants to track, you know, where their sales are actually coming from. It feels yeah, very I mean, messy. <laughs> it, oh, I, I agree. I think it's a total mess. That, that's why we focused on the automation. Cause I think that's one of those like low hanging fruit, but big problems like honey, you know, honey will tell the world that they have 17 million or so users. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if Wikibuy, which is now called capital one shopping. I don't think they announce how many users they have, but what I can tell you is, is both of those companies are spending a tremendous amount of money acquiring new users. Mm-hmm. Every time I log into Twitter, like usually the first ad that I get is from Honey. 
all throughout the Christmas season, holiday season, just recently, Capital One, which owns Wikibuy, Capital One Shopping, they were running TV commercials for this product with Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta. Wow. So there's like a tremendous push for them to grow these user bases. Um, in talking with merchants, and we've got, I don't know, we've got maybe like 25 merchants using our product right now. And we're in closed beta. That problem that you just mentioned, which is, hey, uh, I worked with an Instagrammer and I gave them a code. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, two days later, I've had like a, a vitamin company tell me that story. I've had a sporting goods company tell me that story. I've had a toilet paper company uh, tell me that story. They're using Instagrammers? They're using Instagrammers. They're using uh, YouTubers. Uh, they're, okay. they're actually using podcasts as well. It'd be and, interesting to see how they're partnering on toilet paper. <laughs> well, because they're, they're, they're partnering for the audience on these podcasts and they're hoping that they can get that audience to find out about their product. And, and yeah. again, then, then they're incentivizing them to come and become a customer. Mm -hmm. It's the same, like, it's basically the same net story. The vitamin company told me, or they're like a supplements company. They partnered with one of the biggest triathletes in the world. And I, the, the, I don't know, let's just say they had like 50,000 or a hundred thousand followers, but you've got to imagine they're probably rabid followers. Like, you know, you're, if you're into that, then that's probably like the, the gold standard of who you would listen to. And that person did some blog posts and did uh, some Instagram posts and posted their code. And like, as soon as it happened, they saw like a surge in sales attributed to that person. Now the marketing person at the company was like, oh my gosh. We figured nailed it out. It. Like we <laughs> nailed this. Like we knew that people would be rabid about that person's content. We knew that like, you know, that person had so much influence to get people to come and buy. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, oh my God, it's honey. And like, cause, because literally they went from like zero sales to like, mm -hmm. you know, 80% of their sales that had coupons was that person on Monday. And um, so, yeah, it, it's, you know, it's a, I think it's a frustrating problem. And I think the sophisticated marketers have woken up and are like, man, we're bleeding money. One merchant told yeah. me that when they started, uh, you know, kind of parsing out the attribution that honey was costing them, they did about a million and a half in revenue online per month. So call it a $15 million business, you know, give or take. Mm -hmm. They believed that, uh, that these promo code extensions were costing them about 150 grand a month. Like, wow. I mean, we just had a guest who they ranted about their hatred of honey. I mean, they oh, no went off on the show. So I think it's maybe a couple episodes before maybe when yours is going to oh, go call out. Me. So, call me. Yeah. We can help. I'll send, yeah. I'll send you the link so you can hit him up. But uh, absolutely. Yeah, he was not a happy dude about honey. <laughs> but I guess when I think about promo codes, it kind of feels archaic to me. Maybe this is just a me thing, but it feels like where QR codes were, where all of a sudden it like, they're gone and you don't even think about them anymore. Like promo codes kind of feel like that to me too, of just like, it feels like a manual old way of attributing things. Like, how do you think about, you know, attribution when it comes to influencers and stuff or anyone without having to use a code? Like, are you guys even thinking about like a new way of doing things? Or do you hear of people trying new ways of um, attribution that isn't like I'm putting in a manual, like Stephanie 20 to get my 20% off? Like, is there a new way of doing it? Yeah. I mean, we're thinking through all those things. I think the challenge is, you know, specifically if you're using these one to many mediums, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a perfect world, I think you'd have a unique code for every user. And, and so, you know, you'd have to authenticate and, you know, we'd know that that code went to you, Stephanie. And if you redeemed it, I would know that you actually bought something and you bought something because of, of this engagement that we had. Mm -hmm. um, I think in these one to many mediums, it's, 
like how else can you do it? Right. And, and some of the challenges that, 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 that the, the one to many mediums, like think of YouTubers, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the companies that we're working with has a problem where they, like they have a very high dollar ticket item. Their item that they're selling is about a thousand bucks. And uh, obviously if somebody grabs a code of 20% off that you're losing 200 bucks, it's a lot of money. Their problem was that they were doing YouTuber videos and they were publishing a code within the YouTube video to, to reach the audience. And for them, it was extreme sports is the, the, the audience that they were going after. Like literally the next day, you know, and I don't know if you know how Honey works. If you have Honey on your machine, the very first thing that Honey does is it scrapes out anybody who put, manually puts a code in. So in order for Honey to be able to grab that code, like it has to happen once where a real person saw the code and was motivated to go and type it in and buy. Mm-hmm. But if I, so if that happened to me, if I got that code, I would go in and type it in. And if Honey were on my machine and then I hit okay, Honey will scrape that code out. And now everybody who comes after me gets access to that code, whether they saw that YouTube video or not. Mm-hmm. The problem for this company is they're spending a lot of money engaging with YouTubers and, and creating videos and, you know, obviously uh, doing the presentation layer of these offers. Well, once Honey gets a hold of the code, and what they've also found is that Honey and the other extensions are not very merchant friendly. Mm-hmm. Like the, the relationship between Honey and these merchants is actually quite adversarial. And so it leaves them with no other option. I guess like the two options. One, you just keep running your YouTube thing and you're, you resign yourself that you're going to be paying out a 20% discount to everybody who comes and has Honey, which mm-hmm. that stinks. That doesn't feel right. Or you need to reach out to the YouTuber. You need to recut the video. You need to recut the voiceover. You need to change, you know, you you need to kill that code. You Mm -hmm. need to put a new code in. And so it's made this sort of marketing endeavor with YouTubers and and Instagrammers and you name it very hard because you're actually turning off codes. Um, We saw one email, uh, which was interesting. I always say to people like, let's like, remember we're all consumers too. Like you and I buy stuff on the internet. So like we're, you know, even though we're deeply entrenched in the businesses that we're running, you know, I still, you know, I have honey on my machine so I can understand what that user behavior is so that I can actually talk uh, with merchants. Um, One of the folks on our team bought a pair of shorts uh, from one of these companies that advertises on Facebook and Instagram. Mm -hmm. And they were out of stock after he had ordered it. So they sent him an email and they said, hey, listen, sorry, you know, you didn't have it, but guess what? You know, here's a code, you'll save X percent. um, But please make sure you use it within the next 48 hours because honey has been grabbing our codes and we're going to shut this code off. Like how can people market if you constantly have to play whack-a-mole? Yeah. Now think of the analogy. It's back to like what we do in the malvertising side. If you aren't going to solve things with software, right? Like you're, you're basically playing this long cat and mouse game that you won't win. Yeah. I mean, that's where I think about like merchants turning on and off codes and like, it's a nightmare. I mean, we, yeah, we were handing out swag and me just trying to, like, I had unique links um, that could work for more than one person and just thinking like, oh, that could be tricky and go really bad. But I guess that's why I just think like codes just feel, yeah, like I said, a little bit archaic. Like, why can't I just go to a YouTube video? I mean, the internet knows so much about me and where I'm at anyways. It should say, hey, Stephanie watched, you know, Matt's video where he was talking about this toilet paper. And then all of a sudden she's at our website. Like you can say, Stephanie, a 20% coupon awaits you when you go here. And then when I get there, it should know who I am and then be like, your coupons applied and it'll be applied for the next three days on this website or whatever, because, you know, I know where you've been and what you saw and where exactly you came from. Like, why can't it just work? (laughs) 
I mean, I wish it was all that simple. Right. Yeah. But, you know, but yeah, I think, you know, listen, we, we are taking uh, like obviously a technology solution to what we think is, you know, a longstanding and challenging problem. And, you know, in the malvertising world, like the people in ad operations were literally playing whack-a-mole like, mm-hmm. Oh, let, like, let's figure out where this bad ad came from. Turn that, you know, turn that demand source off or turn that yeah. buyer off. Or, and guess what? The bad actors, they just pop up again. Yeah. And so we believe that, you know, and I've seen and talked to merchants who are like, listen, here's how I solved the honey problem. They're like, we actually created promo codes uh, for 10% off, but the promo code was honey is stealing your data. Like, and, and so that, because if you use honey, you know that like when honey pops up, it'll actually tell you the codes that it's implementing. Yeah. And so what they was, they, they went on like a, you know, a mission to discredit and put the fear of God in their buyers that honey was doing nefarious. It was like, honey is doing nefarious things with your oh, data. Yeah. And guess what? Honey delisted them. Uh, as yeah. So, well, there you go. Now you know how to do it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. The irony is, is that was uh, three months ago that I talked to that merchant and yesterday they came back in and said, listen, we have a problem again. So yeah. honey you know, like, added us again. <laughs> no, this time they've got a wiki buy problem. And so like, okay. like, again, it's like, like, the problem is going to be never ending, I think. So, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately, you know, we're hopefully going to give e-commerce companies the tools that they need to go out and be able to operate their business and focus their time on the things that really matter in my mind, which is yeah. driving incremental revenue, not, you know, playing whack-a-mole with your promo codes and, you know, having to go recut YouTube videos. Like hopefully yeah. that's one of the big things that we help solve for. That's cool. Yeah. I, I mean, I do like the idea of that one merchant you were mentioning where they said, oh, if you act within, you know, the next like, 48 hours or whatever, like it'll only last this long. I just had a guest yesterday who said that I think it was either Burger King or McDonald's made it so if you're within 20 feet or something of a McDonald's, they would send you a code and say, you have five minutes to get to a Burger King to get a free burger or something. And I'm like, that's interesting. That's a good way to make people act you know, quickly. And if you know something's expiring, I know I act a lot quicker, but I mean, of well, course, solve the problem. That's like number one, but I do think, think that's an interesting marketing tactic too. And make it measurable, mm-hmm. right? Like that, I think that's the key thing is that, you know, I, I often say what gets measured gets managed. And so hopefully what we're doing is, is we're like taking one of the things out of the equation that is making measurement really challenging for merchants. Mm-hmm. Like, cause again, like using the, the triathlete example, like, yes, the marketer, was high-fiving the rest of their team going, we finally solved this. And then they, when they actually looked at the data, they were like, damn it, I guess we got to go back to the drawing board. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's also just so tricky to knowing, you know, how much of those people would have bought otherwise or not. So, So even looking and being like, wow, we have all this, you know, attributed to this one promo code and maybe it was because of honey. Um, but how many of those people would have bought if there wasn't some promo on there? It's just hard to know. Um, we're solving that problem. And, yeah. and and so, yeah, we're, we're giving, we're giving merchants, you know, uh, some, some deep analytics mm-hmm. on exactly what's happening on their site. Like, okay. Cause we think that there's a blind spot there where they don't know, you know, like for instance, how many users actually came to your site that actually had an injection like capability, like one of the mm-hmm. extensions, of you know, honey, wiki by piggy, Amazon assistant, you yep. name it. So we give them that lens. And then we give them the lens of what were all the promo codes that they tried to inject? What was the most popular promo code? Um, and stack rank those things. And then going deeper down to conversion rate. And guess what? What we're seeing in these early days is that when you block Honey and Wikibuy at checkout, uh, the vast majority of users actually still convert. Hmm. And so that to me is like the, you know, the icing on the cake, which is, 
hey, guess what? Like you take control back of your website. Uh, you take control of your margins. You take control of your revenue. Yeah. Uh, you now have the data you need to be able to go out and, and do incremental marketing drive, incremental sales. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we think that's pretty powerful. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I, I've heard a couple of times that also discounts don't matter as much as uh, you would think and how I think they were talking about, they did a study between like 10% off and 20% off. And actually they were kind of the same when it came to like consumer happiness. And what can be worse though, is if someone has the ability to go in and put a promo code in or something, and then it doesn't work. I don't know if you remember those days of just like going to the internet promo code for Macy's.com and like trying out 10 different promo codes and all of them failing. I was way more unhappy then, you know, than just not having one at all, like just buying at full value. Let let me tell you uh, like the opposite of that, which is the worst case scenario. And one of our merchants experienced this and that's why they're using our software. They're in the uh, home interiors space. So Mm -hmm. they do like uh, drapes and uh, you know, uh, carpets and wallpaper and all that sort of stuff. And they were trying to build favor with uh, interior designers because they wanted interior designers to know their site and know their stuff and all that sort of stuff. And so they did um, a very exclusive, but unfortunately a promo code uh, that Honey got a hold of that uh, gave interior designers 50% off. Well, lo and behold, you know, as soon as one designer used that code and also had Honey on their machine, that code then got swept up into Honey and everybody, every order that had Honey uh, was now getting 50% off. Mm-hmm. Their customer service nightmare was that they couldn't afford to give every consumer 50% off. So they actually had to cancel orders, believe it or not. They called customers and said, we can't honor your order with that coupon because that coupon was not intended for you. Created a customer service like nightmare for them. And yeah. that's what they want to do is they want to control their user experience. They want to control their, their revenue and their margins. Um, oh gosh, so kind that's of horrible. Out of control. Yeah, but think of that disaster of having to call someone and say, hey, I know you wanted to spend $500 with me, but only pay me 250 bucks. Um, yeah. I can't give you 50 off, but I can give you like 15 off. That's kind of what you were probably entitled to. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, it's just uh, trying to get, you know, control back in these merchants' hands and let them, you know, control their destiny. Yeah, I love that. When thinking about back to the malvertising piece, how much do you think it's on the publishing platforms? Like, is it their responsibility to make sure, you know, that they continue to increase their efforts to make sure bad actors aren't out there anymore? I mean, I know they're probably doing a lot. A lot of people like to hate on the publishing platforms and, you know, they want them to always do more and more and more. And I wonder at what point is it maybe on them or maybe not on them anymore to like continue to try and track those bad actors who, like you said, are kind of popping up here and then they shut down and then open up a new account and do one-off things and then shut down again. Like, how would you, yeah, how should we think about leaning on the platforms like that? You know, I say to folks, like the the value chain in that industry is actually like quite wide, right? And Mm -hmm. so from the bad actor who's putting their hands on the keyboards to the consumer, there's a whole bunch of players in the middle. I think it's on everybody, uh, you know, to really have defenses in place and to, uh, make sure that they're protecting, uh, you know, so if you're at the at the front end, if you uh, own the demand side platform that the bad actor is using, you need to have your own checks and balances to make sure that you're not bringing in malicious buyers. Um, but like all through that value chain, I think everybody, the onus is on everybody. But at the end of the day, what I say is like, the only person that can be responsible to that end user is the publisher. If you are, you know, pick your publisher. If you are you know, Fox News, or you're the New York Post, or you're the Washington Post, like you're the one that has that ultimate relationship with 
Jenny or Johnny consumer who is like, you know, surfing your site and consuming content. Mm -hmm. So you're the last line of defense. You're the one that created the site. You're the one that uh, drove the traffic. You're the one that is using ads to monetize your traffic. It's really on, on you, I think, ultimately. Now, the publishers, you know, all those folks that I named, and there's millions of them, they all want to look upstream and they should, and they should hold everybody accountable upstream. But I think they're the ones that are really that last line of defense. Because yep. the customer, like if you go to one of these sites and you have a crappy experience, you don't really care that it came through an ad. Like the woman with the Harvard Crimson last week, like she didn't know the, like the origins of why it happened. She just knew that when she went, and here's the other crazy thing. She knew that when she went to the Crimson, she was delivered a crappy experience. Now, mm -hmm. the crazy part, first time we've ever done it, we actually did a private webinar with the, with the end user. And because we wanted to explain to her, here's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Um, she told us this story. She said, like, listen, I use Adblock. And obviously, like, the, the risk to publishers are if you don't create great experiences, your users are going to start using Adblock. What she said was, in the desire to get real news and in the desire to really understand what's going on in the world and in the desire to actually make sure that real news publishers are actually getting compensated, she turned her ad block off Got it. and this is what happened. So, you know, like shame on the crimson for not delivering yeah. a great experience because guess what? Now that user's like, I'm not turning ad block off the next time I come to your site. You're not going to get yeah. paid for the traffic that I'm going to generate. So again, yeah. it, it really goes back to the publishers. The onus is on them. Yeah. And thankfully, I think there is like new technologies popping up that maybe we'll be able to enable them or even just thinking about like implementing, I mean, I've seen some advertisers looking into blockchain and having that as being kind of like a more source of truth to be able to know, you know, one-to-one -one relationship and knowing who's behind, you don't know exactly who's behind what, but if you have it in a way where they sign up and they can't just start creating a million different accounts because they've got their one single one that they can go off of, yep. it seems like there's a lot of ways that it can improve over the next couple of years that maybe hasn't been so easy the past decade or so. I, I agree. I think there, you know, obviously there's industry bodies all trying to figure this out together. Um, there's companies like us who are innovating and coming up with, you know, new and unique techniques to block these sort of uh, mm -hmm. nefarious actors. I do think the the biggest and most important thing is, is to recognize that the bad actors aren't just sitting still waiting yeah. for somebody to solve this problem. They're innovating, you know, at a, honestly, like a more rapid rate mm -hmm. than many of the folks, many of the, the industry leaders that you would expect that have hundreds or thousands of people out trying to solve this problem, bad actors, unfortunately, are innovating uh, at, at quite a rapid pace. So, yeah. so the problem, I think, is going to evolve and change. You know, we've seen it evolve to not just being ads, but, you know, obviously, you know, compromised Chrome extensions. Mm -hmm. that, that just seems to be a great vector, yeah. you know. And, and so I think you're going to see the, the, the problem move around. Um, and especially if there's a lot of money in it, uh, if there's ways for these guys to make money, you're going to see them, you know, salivate with, you know, you, you're going to put up this defense and they're going to figure out this way to get around it. And there's so many different browser types, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many different machines, there's security flaws, there's you know, zero day, you know, like yep. there's so many ways for these guys to actually buy and target to only focus on iOS, you know, 13 and below and blah, yep. blah, 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 to reach their audience. Yeah. So tricky. Hmm. Hopefully it'll yep. get solved over the next decade. Cool. Well, with a couple minutes left, let's move over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Matt? I am ready. Thanks. All right. First, the harder one. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? 
listen, I think it's been the gold rush for e-commerce merchants over the last year, right? So like, you know, in, in, in many cases I talked to merchants, they're like, it was raining money mm-hmm. last year. Like, yeah. you know, sales are up, you know, 5X, 10X, who knows? I think the next year is going to be that year where folks actually look to efficiency and they look to figure out, you know, where there are holes in the boat um, that they haven't had to look before. And I think that plays to our product because I think, you know, in many cases when it's raining money, you almost turn a blind eye to some of these sort of things. But I think now folks are like, listen, if I can be more efficient, Mm -hmm. if I can take control of of my revenue and my margins, I'm going to do that. So I think that's probably, uh, this is the year of like people now are catching their breath and they figured out their distribution and they figured out their fulfillment and their warehousing and all that sort of stuff. And the panic that they had to do to keep up with the pandemic growth. Now I think it's a deep breath of like, okay, now let's look at the math. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's a good one. What one thing do you not understand today that you wish you did? I think the affiliate landscape is complex. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of legacy ways in which people have calculated incrementality. And I'm not sure if they're all believable. And I hear a lot of feedback from merchants where, you know, it's kind of like they just brush it under the rug. And they're like, you know what? I know I'm probably paying for stuff that I didn't really get, but, eh, you know, let's just let it go. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think, you know, every percentage point matters. And I think, but that, like that ecosystem, like, because I hear, oh, there's good guys and there's bad guys. And I'd love to really dig deeper on that. And I think that's a yeah. big opportunity for us as a company. Yeah, that's a good one. What's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Wow. Uh, the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. I like to go deep. You know, yeah, that's a deep question. Um, I think I've been fortunate throughout my whole career in that I have been given opportunities that I probably wasn't ready for. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that like, I had never been a CEO before I was at this company. And so, you know, who knew that I'd be able to do it. Um, but I think it actually starts like way back to when I first graduated and I was seeking my first job and I had a mentor that took a risk on me and gave me my shot mm-hmm. and I worked my butt off and hopefully that translated in, and you know, he and, and she felt great about what I was doing. So I think like the nicest thing, I've just been given opportunities that I don't think I deserved and hopefully I earned that respect and trust over time. That's a good answer. If you were to have a podcast, what would it be about? And who would your first guest be? Wow. That is it. This lightning round's hard. <laughs> Good. Needs to be. Stephanie. Um, <laughs> if I were to have a podcast, um, I'm like a, a, I love like gadgets. Mm-hmm. Like I love like little, like I'm, I'm like one of those guys that buys like the infomercial type stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I like, I bought one of those rotisserie showtime grills 20 years ago. I still use it. Um, <laughs> Worth it. So yeah, like, I don't know, I, like I, uh, maybe, maybe it could be like, you know, uh, interviewing people who've built made for TV products and, uh, and really understanding the backstories behind how they came up with the idea and how successful they were. And God knows how much money we all made them. Oh, that's good. We had, um, Kevin Harrington on the show. He was like the original OG shark in shark tank. And he did all like, he basically made the infomercial and it was very interesting hearing his perspective of how it started, where it's at now and Shark Tank. And yeah, it was like- I'm fascinated cool by that. Yeah. yeah, I'm fascinated by that ecosystem. It's uh, it's super cool. So yeah, and by the way, I always do like buy one of those like stupid things for my wife for Christmas and she uh-huh. hates me for doing it because she's like, you're just burning money. Um, like I had fun buying way, it and watching the infomercial at 2 a.m. 
But believe it or not, one of my coworkers gave me a squatty potty for Christmas. Um, I actually feel like those have good value, though. Like the science is there. It's just a weird thing to buy your wife if you got that for her. I did or not. You, well, you were given it. Someone gave it to you. I got was it. given it by one of my coworkers. Okay. Uh, by the way, it works. And their marketing, I think what, that's the Harmon brothers who did their marketing with the whole unicorn and they did the poopery thing. And Oh, yeah. They no, it's super cool. Yeah. But I yeah, love so I, I love I love those kind of gadgets. That's a good one. I would listen to that show. All right. And then the last one, what's up next on your Netflix queue? I'm almost, well, uh, on my Netflix queue, I think I'm, I've got three episodes left on Queen's Gambit. Mm-hmm. Love that um, show. That was a good one. You know, I'm a, I'm a documentary guy. Um, I actually will tell you that I've, I've been kind of hooked on HBO Max for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just finished the Tiger Woods documentary last night, which was fascinating. Okay. Nothing that you hadn't been told before, but still like, I don't know, this guy through adversity has come back multiple times, knee surgeries, play, you know, winning on a broken leg. So I'm into those sort of stories. You know, I, I have a bit of a guilty, uh, you know, one, one of my guilty pleasures is The Bachelor. Yeah. So it's on my, <laughs> nice. it's on my it, it's on my DVR. Um, so I'm, I'm playing that's catch great. up on that, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a, I love reality TV and, and, and that sort yeah. of stuff. I like where your head's at. Me too. Well, Matt, mm-hmm. this has been a very fun interview. Where can people find out more about you and clean.io? Uh, so you can find me at uh, Matt at clean.io. So if you want to send me an email, uh, obviously happy to help you guys in any, any of your challenges and would love to hear your challenges if they're similar or if they're different than ones that we're solving for. Um, hit me on LinkedIn. Uh, So you can find me there. uh, And our company website is clean.io. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.